0: Hello and welcome to Episode 9 of the Feminifesto Podcast. This week, we're very excited to bring to you a conversation between Vaishnavi and Dr. Joni Sega. Dr. Joni Sega is a Professor of Global Studies at Bentley University. She's a feminist geographer and global policy expert. Her Atlas in the Status of Women, just released in its fifth edition, is an award-winning classic. Using maps and graphics, The Woman's Atlas reveals how women live their lives across cultures and countries. Professor Sega has achieved international acclaim for her work in feminist environmental policy analysis, the environmental costs of militaries and militarism, and gender and climate change. Professor Sega is the author of many books, including five editions of the award-winning feminist classic, The Woman's Atlas, Two editions of the State of the Environment Atlas and Earth Follies Coming to Feminist Terms with the Global Environmental Crisis. She has been an active consultant with the United Nations on several gender and environmental policy projects, including consulting with the United Nations Environmental Programme on integrating gender perspectives into their work on disasters and early warning systems, and with the UNESCO and the Division on Economic and Social Affairs on Gender and Water Policy.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Siegel, for joining us on the Feminifesto podcast today. It's my pleasure entirely. All right. To start us off, can you tell us what it means to be a feminist geographer?
2: Ah, that's a great question. So geographers, as I'm sure you know, um, study how societies and people and structures exist in space, mm-hmm. um, and space meaning both human um, created space as well as natural environments. And about 30 years ago, mm-hmm. um, there were increasing numbers of women in the field, uh, field of geography and the discipline of geography, and increasing feminist theory and practice um, in many disciplines. Mm-hmm. And geographers came to realize, came to explore the ways in which our relations to each other across built and natural environments are gender differentiated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, women and men don't have the same experience of quote the city. You know, if you asked right. women, um, even specific questions about, uh, violence, it's a very big issue for women in urban environments everywhere in the world. Women and men see the city differently. They use the city differently. They have different access and different, problems in navigating urban environments. So from that premise that environments and environmental relations are gender differentiated, we now have a huge field of feminist geography.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's now one of it's now one of the largest subfields of the discipline of geography.
1: Right. And it's really interesting because it's not a very widely spoken about field in the sense that we speak about activism when it comes to feminism, or we speak about research and academics, but feminist geography is I think, starting to become more and more well-known. Uh, well, known. well I, I think it is. I think geography
2: in general is becoming more appreciated in part because That's it's right. such an interdisciplinary discipline. So um, people do things, do research in geography that span a wide range of what might be in other disciplines, subfields or particular Mm -hmm. areas of research. So we are a very open field in terms of research interests.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, coming to your latest book, The Women's Atlas, can you tell us more about what inspired you and gave you the idea to write and develop a women's Atlas?
2: Yeah, well, the Atlas, uh, the first edition of the Atlas, believe it or not, was in 1986. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't make me feel old, I'm not sure what does. (laughs) But, um, And it came out of the frustration that, in fact, we were just uh, talking about that as a geography graduate student, Mm -hmm. um, I found no home for my feminism within my discipline, or I found very little kind of reinforcement of my feminist interests that I was pursuing outside of my formal studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were kind of on the cusp in the mid-1980s, the cusp of bringing feminist um, uh, inquiry and feminist curiosity into our discipline. And a new atlas came out of England called the State of the World Atlas, which was unlike any atlas that had existed before. You know, atlases used to be these huge, hardback, heavy tomes that you'd pull off the shelf Mm -hmm. and uh, use it for locational purposes. Well, the State of the World Atlas that a very small publisher in England produced was completely different. It was paperback, it was colorful, it was Hmm. tackling... um, huge range of topics from arms trades to um, flows of income to um, uh, social differentiation, social activism. And when I saw that atlas and a colleague of mine with whom I did the first edition, Annie Olson, when we saw that State of the World Atlas, a light bulb went off and we said, oh my goodness, there needs to be an atlas of women and it needs to look like this. It needs to be Mm -hmm. bright, colorful, unorthodox, accessible, engaging, speaking to an audience that's not just a specialist audience. And so the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, Through a a series of personal contacts, we were put in touch with the publisher, and the publishers had been actually taken by surprise, I think, by the success of their State of the World atlas. And they said, that they indeed were interested in doing other variants, including a women's atlas, and they didn't know who to do it with. And we said, well, here we are. And um, (laughs) so the first atlas that was published in 1986 was really what I call a proof of concept. That is, I mean, we didn't do it in that spirit, but when I look back on it now, I realize that the purpose of that first atlas was really to say, you can look at the world through the lives of women and you mm-hmm. get a very different view of the world Definitely. because when when we were planning the first atlas in the i guess it'd be in 1984 1985 friends and colleagues even you know close friends who were politically on the same wavelength as we were would look at us and say oh yeah but what would be in an atlas of women like what what could you put in there and and we had a list of you know 100 plus topics that we wanted but people seem kind of befuddled by the idea of, or skeptical of the idea, I should say, of a women's atlas. And so the first atlas was really just to say, let's make women's lives visible. And here you go, you can see the world entirely differently through the, through the lens of women's lives.
1: And it's amazing because you've done a couple of editions through the year and the through the years and the Atlas is a cogent and a comprehensive snapshot of the state of women in the world over. And it's honestly very incredible how much you've accomplished within the leaves of a book. So what was the process? Thank you very much. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) Thank you for publishing it. It's it's truly amazing. Can you tell us more about the process of what it was like putting it together? Were there any particular challenges that you faced and what kind of differences have you observed throughout the years
2: okay so let's uh, let me kind of uh, disaggregate that question into a, a couple of different <laughs> answers um sure, sure. What, one of them how, the the main challenge was and remains information or d- data and i try mm-hmm. not to use the word data so much because that implies <clears throat> quantitative information and mm-hmm in this atlas only some of the topics are suitable for quantitative treatment so on the on the more if you will conventional topics um, percent of women in the wage workforce or women's participation in the wage workforce looking for data from the main data agencies in the world whether that's the world bank or the un or on Mm -hmm. some topics the world health organization that that data is quantitative Mm -hmm. but once you start branching out from that when you start thinking about oh let's say the role of beauty in women's lives Mm -hmm. and notions of beauty and the ways in which women are um, persuaded to contort themselves to meet idealized notions of beauty once you start talking about issues such as that such as that which are really big in women's lives everywhere in the world there's no such thing as a database. And and in fact, it would be um, completely wrongheaded to try to cram that
1: mm-hmm.
2: rich, qualitative, nuanced conversation into a matter of a few data points. So for th- those kinds of topics, including women's activism or, or uh, beauty, or in some cases, experience of violence, <clears throat> excuse me, those need to be treated through a more qualitative and Um, kind of narrative lens that's partly the use of um, that that's facilitated by the use of some of the infographics so I know you've seen the um, the atlas and some of it is much of the book is world mapping or in a couple of cases regional mapping but a lot of it is also kind of snappy infographics and data visualizations Mm -hmm. and for topics where we don't have global coverage um, in a data format, we use data data visualizations and infographics to make to make a point or to make a particular uh, issue kind of pop mm-hmm. visually.
1: Right. So when we talk about um, <clears throat> the women face, a lot of people often don't know the magnitude. And we resort to generic terms like, many women face such and such, or the majority of women go through this, go through this. So women's atlas for me was extremely hard hitting because I saw specifics and I was completely taken aback by how much larger the problem seemed to be than my understanding of it. So have you found that it is easier to relay the magnitude of problems faced by women through such infographics and statistics?
2: Well, that's a really interesting observation, um, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you frame it in that way. Um, the short answer, I would say yes, in the sense that infographics and maps allow people who don't consider themselves to be specialists mm-hmm. um, to enter into conversation, if mm-hmm. you will, yeah. metaphorical conversation <clears throat> with these topics. So if I plunked a, a ream of statistical information um, you know, on a desk in front of many people, their eyes are going to roll back in their head. It's like, oh my goodness. But you show <laughs> yeah. them, you show them a map or you show them an infographic and you don't need to think of yourself as a specialist to look at a map and say, oh my goodness, why are all of those countries... Red and all of these countries are blue. You know what, or, or orange? Why, why, why is Angola different from Botswana in terms of HIV infection rates of young women? You can look at th- look at a map and ask that question. You may not find the answer, but at least it kind of directs your curiosity um, in a way that then you can pursue a larger understanding of the issue. So I'm, you know, again, as a speaking as a geographer. I believe in mapping. I, I map everything, even when I'm just sitting you know, sometimes at the breakfast table and reading right. the newspaper, I'll doodle a little map. Because I think mapping, um, it's not only that a picture is worth a thousand words, but mm-hmm. mapping allows patterns and both similarities and differences to turn up at the same time. And that's really right. important. Because we don't, we don't just want to say, everything in the world of women is x thus and such whatever it Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. we want to say where are the commonalities and where are the differences and a map or a visual information in my mind absolutely makes that immediately apparent
1: definitely so do you believe that a feminist data collection process or a feminist analysis of data of all kinds big data included is possible
2: Yes, absolutely, and in fact, right now there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people working on uh, feminist feminist data. What does it mean? Now, I I would say I'm particularly cautious about big data, although that's the very hot topic these days. Everyone's doing big data, but for the reasons that we were just talking about, a lot of the information that you really want to know about women's lives is not either captured, it's not amenable to and it shouldn't be reduced to big data points that you can put through a kind of number crunching system. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, uh, geographers were um, in the forefront of the big data revolution because GIS, the mapping, the automated mapping program called GIS, geographic information systems, really was the first to deploy big data sets and so you know i know my way around big data a little bit i'm not i'm not a gis Mm -hmm. expert by any means but i'm very skeptical and wary of big data when it comes to uh gender differentiated information because um we used to have a saying when i was a graduate student about uh, stupid in and stupid out meaning if you put (laughs) inadequate information inadequate data into your big data system, mm-hmm. you're going to get bad information out. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and women's lives and gender disaggregation is usually not part of big data um, uh, systems. That's changing a bit because yes, feminists are getting into uh, these networks, but um, mm-hmm. I'm skeptical about big data, I just have to say. I think in fact for women's, to really get a nuanced social assessment whether it's disaggregated by ethnicity or race or religion or gender, you actually need small data, not big data.
1: Uh, definitely, I would agree with you because small data tends to be a little more intersectional, the sense that it takes into account a lot of factors like you mentioned.
2: Yeah, I mean, big data is not intersectional at all. In fact, mm-hmm. it's a big normative machine now yeah. you can you can use it to Reveal intersectional information, but that's not its best use or its or its foundational premise.
1: Right. So moving on to one of your other uh, focus areas, that is the environment. How does feminism oh, yes. and gender tie into environmental policies and climate change? Ah, climate change. Well, okay,
2: so um at about the about ten years after feminism was starting to enter the field of geography mm-hmm. uh, in the 1990s feminism was starting to enter the field of environmental studies now um, most people, both specialists and um you know everyday observers, think of the environment in air quotes you can see me doing air quotes there the <laughs> environment yeah. as being gender neutral that mm-hmm. it 's a physical um the environment is natural environment is thought of in its um, physical forms and you know what is possibly gender differentiated about the percentage of chemicals in the water supply or the um, size of the ozone hole how can you say anything um, gender differentiated about that and the answer is you can't if you think of the environment strictly and solely in its physical manifestations. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what I would say, and what many of us have argued in the field, that's part of the whole problem of the environmental field, is that the environment is often seen as primarily an assemblage of physical features.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What, what we from the social sciences, and particularly from a feminist point of view, say is no, the, the environment is that to some extent it is a physical um it it is defined by a physical set of characteristics Mm -hmm. but it's also a social it we it's a social setting humans both create the natural environment modify the natural environments and relate to it very differently right so for example let me give you a brief example in many in many cultures many many cultures around the world Mm -hmm. there are Prohibitions or su- superstitions or uh, taboos about women in boats. Women are not supposed to fish in boats, yes. whether that's little boats or big boats. And so in many systems where, where there's artisanal fishing, it's men who do the fishing and women who in the open ocean, and women who do perhaps shoreline fishing or and/ or do marketing of the fish that the men bring in from the open ocean. So if you just take that as a kind of understood premise in many, in most of the world, Mm -hmm. and if you asked women who are doing their uh, work in the coastal um, ecosystem, if you asked them, what's happening with climate change are there environmental changes what's happening with uh, perhaps the uh, small fish or the the uh, small fry fish supplies they would give you one answer mm-hmm. then if you asked men who are out in the open ocean what's happening what's changing they would give you a different answer mm-hmm. and if you only asked men or if you only asked women you would not have a good understanding of what's going on in the ecosystem that mm-hmm. is men and women are literally socially and physically situated differently in relationship to the environment. Right. So if you, take, if you take that example, which is a very literal and specific example, and kind of open it up, mm-hmm. you can see all kinds of ways in which um, uh, the socialization and the social norms and the social expectations of masculinity and femininity of men and women mm-hmm. means that women and men have different relationships feel different impacts have different perceptions of and have different needs of their relationship to the environment
1: right. and
2: so so feminist environmental work is a, aims to reveal and make visible those gender-based differences in relation to the environment mm-hmm. um, one of the first, kind of research, one of the earliest research trajectories Mm -hmm. um, into feminist environmentalism was to look at impacts. So we know that in natural disasters, men and women often have very different um, experiences of natural disasters and wildly different uh, death death, and injury rates. Um, yeah. I mean, in the um, terrible tsunami um, in 2001, uh, death rates for women were three to four times that mm-hmm. of men. But pretty much every natural disaster, quote, natural disaster you look at, um, you have very specific. Um, jet- highly gender differentiated um, Mm -hmm. death rates. And so that impact analysis, to say that men and women feel environmental change or environmental problems differently, was in some ways the easiest entry point because it's the most visible. You can actually, you can literally see it. You can Mm -hmm. kind of count the uh, impacts of these disasters. And so there's been the greatest amount of work in feminist environmentalism is on impacts the dimension of women and men feeling environmental change or environmental conditions differently but increasingly feminist environmentalism is also kind of opening a wider lens and saying hold on it's not just impacts it's drivers what's making environmental change what kind of um, uh, commitments to what kind of industrial systems uh, or literally drivers who's driving the cars that are uh propelling our climate change problems Um, uh, or consumption practices those are gender differentiated so it's not just the effects of uh, environment that are gender differentiated but actually gender norms create from the beginning Mm -hmm. um environmental change, and, 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 and gender analysis, feminist analysis and gender differentiated analysis is critical in understanding why we have environmental problems in the first place, not just what the effective of environmental problems are.
1: Right. So <clears throat> in your view, what would a feminist solution look like for the spiraling <clears throat> environmental disaster?
2: Well, the first thing is you need to have uh, different voices at the table, and I know everyone always says that, but it's Mm -hmm. critically important because, again, to go back to what I was saying earlier, if you only ask geochemists what's going on in the chemistry of the oceans, you will have one lens on what's happening in the environment, but it's not the only lens or even perhaps in many cases the most important lens so you have to have different disciplinary perspectives different um, uh, experiential perspectives um, uh, different sets of knowledge all sitting at the same table to come up with environmental policies and Mm -hmm. um, environmental commitments that are both sustainable and if you will um, sensible sensible to The wide array of interests that are represented in um, trying to uh, make uh, environmental change uh, for the positive. Um, So that's the first thing, is we've got to stop, we collectively have got Mm -hmm. to stop thinking that it's only the physical scientists who can tell us accurately about the state of the environment. We need to bring social scientists in, we need to bring feminist perspectives in, we need to bring poets to the table and uh sociologists and philosophers mm-hmm. and so far our expert pool the expert structure of environmentalism, environmental things is very narrow it's it's really a narrow expert pool and we need to widen that up mm-hmm. so you know bringing feminists and feminist knowledge um into the conversation is not, it's not a magic wand. I mean, I'm not saying feminist analysis is going to solve our problems or change the world, but you won't have sustainable change if you don't bring different perspectives and gender perspectives into environmental conversations. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes. So I wanna talk a bit now about the current political climate across the world and the US as well. So, given uh, this current uh, political uh, climate, where women are struggling to fight for their most fundamental rights, how do you think a woman can make sure that her voice is heard?
2: Well, I think that one of the, you asked me earlier, and I don't think I, uh, I, I don't think I answered it. You asked me earlier, what are what's one of the kind of change points that I've seen? And one right. of the change points that I've seen, and, and to answer this current um, question. Uh, is that women's activism has become much more visible, much more transnational, Mm -hmm. much more intersectional, Mm -hmm. and much more, and and kind of faster communications, partly to do with social media. Um, uh, But also we, as feminists, I think we've become more sophisticated in our approach to um, uh, feminist problem solving. And Mm -hmm. I think visibility is a major, major piece of that. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, 20 years ago, people were not openly talking about violence against women or uh, rape or rape Mm -hmm. cultures. And now I know in India, there's enormous activism around violence against women. Um, The Me Too, hashtag Me Too movement has kind of whizzed around the globe um, as well. Those kinds of, um, those kinds of feminist Uh, solidarity actions are absolutely critically important and they're just getting stronger and stronger. And secondly, I think that feminists are bringing, and relatedly I should say, feminists are bringing topics into public conversation that were previously considered to be not appropriate for public conversation. So the problem with Toilet provision mm-hmm. again. I know this is a an active issue under discussion in India, and there's been in mm-hmm. India tremendously powerful right to pee movements. And yes. in fact, we have a we have a map on that uh, spread on that in um, in the atlas. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, you know, again, ten years ago, people were not in open policy conversations talking about toilets or the right to pee, and now they are. And um, part of that is peeling back the, um, uh, the notion that there, there are private things that shouldn't be talked about in public, mm-hmm. let alone policy or government settings. And feminists have brought that to the, into the open and said, no, this is a public policy issue. This is a public health issue, or um, a public concern, and that is extraordinary. That mm-hmm. is probably um, that is probably one of the most powerful changes that I've seen. Is that we're not women are not satisfied to say, "Oh, that's a private issue. We can't talk about menstruation. We can't talk about toilets or sanitation." It's like, mm-hmm. no, we're going to talk about it, and we're going to make. The men in power talk about it and think about it that's extraordinary that's an extraordinary change.
1: definitely, I would definitely agree with you because yeah. these movements have i mean they've sprung up in places you wouldn't expect them to as well in places so you
2: you, you see that, do you?
1: Yes, I think so because in India, um, things like gender-based violence, sexual harassment rape are extremely taboo but the Me Too movement was extremely surprising because so many women came out with their stories and they were taken seriously because the men were held accountable and they were, you know, they were actually punished and some were taken out of their jobs. Yeah. I I felt that was extremely um, a good surprise. Yep,
2: yeah, absolutely. Mm
1: -hmm. So during the US midterms that happened earlier this month, we saw something amazing. The U.S. had many firsts in its political leadership um, and the intersections were truly amazing to see. For example, um, two Native American women, women of color, women of varying religions. So how are you feeling right now thinking about all of this and what's to come?
2: Well, well. first of all, I have to say I'm very impressed that you know so much about the U.S. election <laughs> in such detail. I, I have to say that that's very impressive. Um, that uh, And I realize that people around the world do follow the U.S. elections. Yeah, it
1: was covered that, a lot.
2: A lot, yeah. Well, unfortunately, I should say, unfortunately, it is really important for the world because mm-hmm. what happens in the U.S., um, Uh, in any of the big powers um, Mm -hmm. really counts for the world. Um, I mean, on the one hand, uh, of course it was great. It was a great repudiation of Uh, Trump, Mm -hmm. President Trump, and Mm -hmm. his um, uh, rush into the arms of fascism and authoritarianism. So to have that kind of repudiation was great. Um, It wasn't as uh, kind of big a a, a repudiation as I would have wished. So Mm -hmm. in the United States, as you obviously know, there's the lower house and there's the Senate. And those different bodies of government have different... um, realms of authority. And the mm-hmm. Senate has treaty power. So it's the one that makes, you know, climate change treaties or yeah. um, human yeah. rights treaties. And it also has the uh, advisory role on judicial appointments to, to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So the fact that uh, Democrats won the House and won mm-hmm. it so convincingly is fantastic. Mm-hmm. The fact that Republicans retain control um, of the Senate remains a disaster because um, uh, the Supreme Court is already being stacked with mm-hmm. uh, right-wing uh, justices. Yes. And um, uh, if, if the Republicans retain uh, control for another two years, let alone, heaven forbid, another four years after that, mm-hmm. um, the Supreme Court will be uh, irredeemably changed for mm-hmm. generations. Uh, so I'm really worried about that. Um, and as say, the, uh, the treaty-making um, uh, powers of the Senate are really important. Mm-hmm. However, the House has great discretion, uh, has great power on spending and so perhaps the democrats will be able to shift some of the spending priorities of um, president trump and the and the Mm -hmm. republicans for example away from his ridiculous border wall um, you know he's talked from the beginning about building a big wall uh, on the mexico border which is Mm -hmm. going to cost literally Billions, as with a B, billions of dollars, Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, despite his bluster that oh, he was going to make Mexico pay for it, which is completely ridiculous and always was completely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, if he gets uh, authorization to build this wall, it will be uh, billions and billions of dollars out of the um, domestic budget in the U.S., Mm -hmm. and that's that kind of spending can be controlled by um, the Democrats, and so there's the. Democrats in the House. So there's tremendous importance to the fact that the Democrats do now have control of the House. Um, mm-hmm. I, I am uh, not particularly optimistic, but I'm guardedly willing to be optimistic. <laughs> is, 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 that, is that tentative enough for you? Yes. <laughs> I, I, I think it's good. I think it could have been better. And uh, I, uh, I think that another two years with Trump in the presidency and the GOP in control of the Senate continues mm-hmm. to be a, ro- a rolling disaster.
1: I think that's the attitude I've been seeing on the news or on Twitter. It's that for now, we'll take what we can get. This is yeah. a good enough step. It, that's, the, that's the talk that's been you know, prevalent.
2: But absolutely having, as you started um, the discussion, is having many more women mm-hmm. in uh, in Congress and diverse women, uh, exactly. women of color. And as you rightly pointed out, um, Native American women mm-hmm. and Muslim women, having diverse, having women and diverse women in the Congress is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot of enthusiasm and excitement about that.
1: Mm-hmm. So you spoke a little bit about the border wall and about the immigration crisis. Do you believe that, um, Geography has evolved in its role in understanding the feminist impact of world events, like, for example, in the context of forced or choice based migration of women. Would you say that there's a lot more nuanced understanding of how geopolitical events impact this?
2: Absolutely. And uh, and it is geographers who are um, paying attention to these issues, but also um, people from other disciplines and other areas of interest too, including political scientists and sociologists. But uh, when you look at um, uh, migration patterns around the world, mm-hmm. they are often gender differentiated. So, um, you know, the flow of um, Philippine women or women from the Caribbean to be medical workers Mm -hmm. in uh, in the Gulf states or in um, Canada and North America. That's a very different flow from um, men who are moving from uh, um, South Africa uh, or Southern South Africa into Northern South Africa to the mines, you know, there are male migration flows and female migration flows and of course, mixed flows, but uh, it's often uh, women who are um, the least, who have the greatest disadvantages and the greatest um, incentive to migrate. And in fact, when you look at the, um, what Trump has um, uh, exaggerated as this kind of fearful caravan Mm -hmm. of migrants now moving through Central America and Mexico Mm -hmm. into the United States. The very, very high proportion of them are women and um, uh, they just are uh, at a state of complete um, desperation and uh, Trump's response by tear gassing them and militarizing the border mm-hmm. is is appalling absolutely appalling
1: mm-hmm. yes so dealing with challenges and <laughs> such dreadful things that we hear on the news it's tiring to say the least how do you find yourself coping because women in general we tend to prioritize others needs before our own do you find yourself falling into the same trap <laughs> well um
2: not not really i think that um i i am i am discouraged often mm-hmm. by yeah. the overwhelming nature of the political and um personal challenges ahead of us all and ahead of women around the world. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I do see change. And Mm -hmm. I see change happens only because we keep going and we keep each other going. And uh, so I think that, you know, every day that I teach another class at my university or I Mm -hmm. write another essay or write another article, that's not the same kind of work that people are doing uh, let's say out in a refugee camp, which is an mm-hmm. incredibly challenging uh, situation. Of course, for the refugees first and foremost, but also for people uh, doing refugee assistance. So mm-hmm. I'm not out there. I'm not in the tents in the in the cold winter months. Mm-hmm. But I, in my own way i Am trying to move forward, uh, awareness about and uh, solidarity about, and commitment to change social change, mm-hmm. and um, and that really keeps me going. I actually don't find that burdensome. I find in that I find that very energizing to say mm-hmm. I can see that we collectively can make change.
1: That's wonderful to hear. It's definitely because of people like yourself that young feminists such as myself feel inspired and motivated to take on. The world and its multitude of challenges.
2: Well, I'm very, I'm very impressed by the, uh, uh, by the work that you're doing, and the Red Elephant Foundation sounds fantastic. So many congratulations uh, to you on that. I know it's very hard to keep um, this kind of social change um, uh, organization going.
1: Thank you so much. So on that lovely note, I'd like to end by asking you, what kind of advice would you give to aspiring environmental activists, geographers, and feminists? Uh, Ah, my advice is create
2: solidarity groups, find your allies and Mm -hmm. keep them close, Mm -hmm. Keep them close to you, whether that's intellectual allies, meaning people who are working on the same issues from similar perspectives, or whether it's kind of social change allies, we absolutely can't allow ourselves to be isolated or kind of split off from each other. It's really important. To form um, um, alliances, whether that's just two people talking to each other, I'm not necessarily thinking of alliances in some grand mm-hmm. uh, term, but um, uh, don't think that you can or should be doing this work by yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So thank you so much, Dr. Sieber, for being with me here today. It was an extreme honor and pleasure to be speaking to you and hearing your views and thoughts and experiences and I'm sure that just like me uh, and Keithy, our listeners will be extremely inspired and motivated by the work that you do.
2: Well, thank you very much. And thank you for your work. And let's keep in close touch yes. about, about all kinds of things. <laughs>
1: thank you so much.